Hello, this is Do Go On. I'm Matt Stewart. And I'm Taran Jayamana. And uh, we're in Sydney. And uh, we're about to be in Brisbane. And we're doing live shows. They're called Dry Dryer. And also, who knew with Matt Stewart in both those cities? And you can get details at mattstewartcomedy.com. Anything else you want to tell the good listeners that do go on, Saran? Well, the whole point of this was you thought that it might be more engaging if you had a different voice. But you've said most of the information. So, hey, come see us in Sydney and Brisbane. Yeah, that was engaging. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Another episode of Do Go On. My name is Dave Warnicky, and I'm here with Jess Perkins and Matt Stewart. Hello, Dave Warnicky. Hello, Dave Warnicky. Hello, Matt Stewart. Hello, Jess Perkins. Oh, very good. Hello, Jess Perkins. I felt weird if I didn't say hi to everybody. That's true. You did. You did do that, including yourself. Well, otherwise, it's going to be strange. How weird would that be? <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How are we? We good? We are good. Well, I'm good. Matt, you good? I'm all right. Yeah, I'm pretty good. We just had a little falafel. Had a yeah, had a big falafel. Really, it's fucking huge, delicious. I had a pea day, possibly pied. I was embarrassed about how to say it. Yep, and she judged you regardless. Yeah, I kind of pointed to the menu whilst whispering <laughs> what I wanted. Hello, can I please have a? <sighs> she went. Yep, I've got it. Yeah, yeah. I said you are good at your job, madam. Thank you very much. It was delicious. It was delicious. Yeah, so we're having a good day. We're having a bloody great day. Hey, um, shall I get on to the topic? Yes, let's get into the topic. JP, it is your turn to report on a topic that Matt and I don't know what it is. Mm. And we always start with a question. And, and I, I predict you have not written one. I have not written one. <laughs> God's wow. But this is a topic that I'd never heard of. And so I'm, my question is just going to be... Have you heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> Do you, gentlemen, know... Do you remember... And we were we were young and innocent then. Oh, well, you went for two different songs, yeah, then, didn't you? Yeah, we Earth, Wind, and Fire. Do you remember? Uh, the oh, with Michael Jackson. Oh, okay, wow. Remember the time? Oh, yeah, gotcha, yep. The, one, the film clip with Eddie Murphy went for about 15 minutes. Do you reckon I can ask the question? No. Okay. <laughs> Certainly not. Keep talking about Michael Jackson, then. Okay, uh, well, born in Gary, Gary. Indiana. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Love you, Gary. <laughs> We've had multiple messages telling us to steer clear of Gary, which makes me want to go there even I more. I know. Maybe, so that's what that's, maybe that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, stay away from the gold bars that everyone gets. Once they're treating they Gary go. mean, and they're keeping us keen. Yeah, that's how it works. It's working. It's working. Anyway, do you know what happened to the Sodder children? Oh, Sodder. 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 I'm guessing it's... Real good. Yeah, they went to a theme park. 
won a million dollars at the theme park. I'm went go- to Gary, Indiana, had a great time. <sighs> I'm going to tell you the story about a time when some kids went to Disneyland. Oh, that's so great. Good. Was it you and I in 1998? I had Jess? a lovely day, and that'll be my report. It's going to be really fun. This is not going to be good. And then it, they went on the teacup ride, and then they went on. <laughs> And, the then they had a, and then they had a break, and then they lined up and got a, a nice cold drink. And then they went on, yeah. The terrifying part of that story was that they lined up for a drink. Yeah. That is harrowing. <laughs> Imagine spending your day at Disneyland and lining up for a drink. Mm-mm. That's not what you go to Disney oh, for. No. no, thank you. Anyway, shall I tell you about the Sodder family? I yeah. personally have not heard of them, Matt. Matt? No, I haven't heard of them. This was suggested by Frank Taylor um, on Twitter. So thank you, Frank. Um, and it's quite, it's an interesting story. So and Should we say that maybe this week is a little bit Halloween-y? Yes. Oh, yeah, you were going to do a Halloween-y topic. We yeah. talked about this last week off-air, obviously. You, we said that maybe you do something for Halloween, which makes me, probably Matt, too, worry what's going to happen to the sort of children. Well, I, yeah, I was looking for something... Um, I was thinking like a, I'll do a murdery kind of topic, oh, or I'll do like go a... on like one of those scary rides. They went on a scary ride. Oh, the time the Sodder Children went on a, a roller coaster. That gave slash me chills when he said that horror ride. Did it? Is it just the whispering? Yeah, I think it's just the whispering. Okay, cool. Well, good to know. I'll do that a bit through the episode then. I reckon. Um, so, let's start with uh, the patriarch of the family, George Sodder, and he was born Giorgio Sodu. In Sardinia, in Italy, in 1895. Beautifully said. Thank you. Um, he immigrated to the United States when he was 13 um, with his older brother. And for the rest of his life, George Sodder, as he came to be known, would not talk much about why he had left his homeland in the first place. He eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. Next door to Ohio. Go Penguins. Years, after a few years, he took more permanent work in Smithers, West Virginia as a driver, and after a few more years after that, he started his own trucking company, at first hauling um, dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in that area. And it was in West Virginia that he met Jenny, um, Jenny Cipriani, probably Cipriani. Beautifully said. Whatever. A <laughs> storekeeper's daughter, um, who had also come to the US from Italy uh, as a child. And they got married and they settled outside nearby um, Fayetteville, which had a large population of Italian immigrants um, in a two-story timber frame house uh, that was two miles north of the town, so just out of the town. In uh, 1923, they had the first of their ten children. What? Just let me ask you one question. Yeah. What did they call that child? <laughs> John. And do they know what was causing it? Fucking. Fucking. Two-part answer to your two-part question. John and sex. Oh. Um, which, which question... Has which answer? They Did they know what was causing it? John? Yes. What do they call their first child sex? They named it first child sex, yes. It's <laughs> a catchy name. I like that. Um, George's sex Stewart. Sex Stewart. Oh. Sex Perkins. Like Tex Perkins. Sex Perkins <laughs> works good. You really should definitely well. rename yourself. I don't think Rebranded I will. Rebranded sex. <laughs> I don't think I will, but thank you so much for Se- the suggestion. I don't know if you know, but sex I is like, pretty I do love popular. What do you mean? Sex is really popular with young people. How? You can connect sexually. Oh, I don't want to connect sexually. Sex Warnicky. No, that's scary. <laughs> that's you sound dumb. like yeah. <laughs> you sound like a, a criminal. That's real dumb. Sex Warnicky. Sex war. Imagine a sex war. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we had two different reactions there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they 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 had their first child and George's business started to do really well and they became quite a respected middle class family in that community. Um, however, George had strong opinions about the many about many subjects. He's an opinionated guy, and he was not shy about expressing them. Who sometimes this kind of alienated other people. In particular, he was very against. Uh, uh, he he opposed Italian dictator Mussolini. Okay. He's really he's, he was anti. He was anti Mussolini. Okay. And um, that led to some strong arguments with other members of the community who who you know who were pro who were pro and supported Mussolini. <laughs> I'm saying it like Musso. Musso. Mussolini. It's like weird. the van company. Musso. The truck and van company, Musso. Um, the last of the Sodder children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. And by then, their oldest son, Joe. I said John before. Sorry, Joe. Oh, his name Joe was Joe was sex. causing it. <laughs> Joe, Joe was causing it. I feel like he was John. Oh, no, no, Joe. called him Joe. How many years in between, do you reckon, vaguely? Uh, well, Joe's in the war and Sylvia's a baby, so oh, okay. it's quite a, quite a span. 
Um, uh, he had left home to serve in the military during World War Two. For America? Yes. They're American children. Like, the kids are all born in the yep. States, obviously. Um, now, the Sodders celebrated on Christmas Eve 1945. They're celebrating Christmas. Um, Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at the Dime Store in downtown Fayetteville, and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, who was 12, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, with new toys she'd bought for them as gifts, which was really nice. She'd been saving up a little bit of money and bought her little sisters some presents. The younger children were so excited and they asked their mother if they could stay up past their bedtime so they could play with their new toys. At 10pm, Jenny, the mother, told them that they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys, who were still awake, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis, remembered to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. Right, okay, sorry. <laughs> so they're farming. Yeah, they're in like a... For got... some reason, I'm imagining them in, in the city and then like they're in a, an apartment and then suddenly they're bringing the cows and chickens in no, and I was like, what? they're two miles out of the town. Gotcha. They're on like a bit, of, a bit of land. Not a huge... Not a main big farm, but they've got like a few animals and stuff around. What do you reckon these 1945 toys are? Imagine being so excited by like a what a wooden block or something that you've got to stay up late. Yeah, like, play with the stick. Bet it's painted red or something. Yeah. It's a red stick. Get off your high horse there, mate. Okay? These kids were happy with their painted sticks. They're happy with a red stick. I'm yeah, sorry. Have, a, have a brick. Use your imagination. Yeah. Red no, stick, right. red brick. God, kids these days. Brick and stick. I remember that game. It was yeah. a fun game. I, I mean, you I was, loved it. I did love it as a, as a kid. In you the... talk about brick and stick all the time. I do. Brick and and now here you are being Judgy McJudgeson. Look, I was trying to fit in with you cool young kids. No, and, mate. Uh, Come on. I took the wrong path. Dave, sorry about him. Don't worry about him. Anyway, I'll go on. Please do. <laughs> um... So, yeah, she said, all right, you can stay up a bit later, but the boys have to put, you know, the animals away, and, and they agreed. And her husband, so George, and the two oldest boys, John, who was 23, and George Jr., who was 16, they'd spent all day working with their father. They were exhausted, so they went to sleep. There's a John and a Joe. Well, this is confusing. And a George. There's they John love and the, Joe. They love, gotcha. Okay, sorry, sorry. They bloody love the Jin names, don't they? J- yeah, Jenny, George, Joe... Bloody Marion. They're all in there. Um, after reminding the children of those chores, she was like, remember, put out, put the cows and be good. That's what she said, word for word. Wow. Um, wow. She took Sylvia, who was two, upstairs with her and went to bed herself. The phone rang at about 12.30 and Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer the phone. It was a woman whose voice she didn't recognise, asking for a name she wasn't familiar with with the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. She told the caller she'd reached the wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. Ooh, prank call? Well, we don't know. She hung up and she went back to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn in the living room. So she goes into the living room to see if the kids are still awake, assuming that's why all the lights are still on. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed the other kids had just gone up to, um, up to the attic where they all slept. They'd gone up to their bedroom. So she closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and goes back to bed. About half an hour later, at 1am, Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. Brick and stick. (laughs) They were playing an outdoor game of brick and stick. Yeah, on the roof. Um, she, She didn't hear anything else after that, so she went back to sleep. And about another half hour later, she woke up again smelling smoke. When she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire. What?! She woke up George, and he in turn woke up the older sons, um, because they were all sleeping downstairs. Both parents and four of their children, so Marion and Sylvia, the baby, and the two older boys, John and George, they got out of the house, and they frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. So they're in the attic? They're in the attic. They couldn't get up as the stairway itself was already aflame. Oh, no. So the kids that are left are Maurice, who's 14, Martha, who's 12, Louis, who's 9, Jenny, who's eight, and Betty, who's five. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone didn't work, so Marion ran to a neighbour's house to call the fire department. But the phone, And a driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. Both calls were unsuccessful, either because they, um, they couldn't reach the... because neither of them could reach an operator. So a neighbour has called from a tavern, can't get through to an operator. Marion's run to another neighbour's house to make the phone call 
can't get through to an operator. That's weird. Very weird. George, who was barefoot, climbed the wall and broke open an, uh, the attic window, cutting his arm quite seriously in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it wasn't in its usual resting place against the house, and they couldn't find it anywhere nearby. Fuck. A water barrel um, uh, that could have been used to extinguish the fire. Like they, they, they like, okay, we'll get water and we'll, we'll get to the flame. It was frozen solid. They couldn't get to it at all. George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the house. His intention was like he'd use them to climb up to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked previously uh, the previous day. What the fuck? So he can't get the cars to move either. Frustrated, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and oh collapse over the next 45 minutes. Oh, my God. A neighbour had actually driven into town to find the fire chief. His name was F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, a phone tree system where one firefighter phoned another who phoned another. The right. fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m. What time was it? About 1 it was about one thirty, two o'clock, so six hours later. Oh, so the house is burnt to the ground. The house is, yeah, the, it was completely, it was a um, smoking pile of ash by that stage. So, um... This phone tree system needs to be looked at. Yeah, it's not great. Um, this this is kind of weird too. Chief, uh, Chief Morris said the next day that uh, the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could was available but there's no context as to why he was he couldn't drive it. Why a fire chief can't drive his truck? Yeah. The, Drunk. The, I've got no idea why. Drunk? You think that in an emergency you'd be like, oh, fuck it, I'll try yeah, it. Yeah, true. There was a note that um, uh, apparently like the firefighters, they were under-resourced as well because of the war, so there was only, you didn't have a, like a full fleet of firefighters either, and I think they're in a relatively small place. Now, the firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, the mum, um could do little but look through the ashes as they were left uh, in the Sodders' basement. By 10am, Morris told the Sodders that they had not found any bones, as might have been expected, if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. Nevertheless, Morris believed that the five children, unaccounted for, had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Jesus, I'm hoping that because no one saw him go upstairs. Yeah, right? no one seen him go upstairs, and they were just told to go outside get the cows or whatever. But no one knew, no, definitely knows they went there, do mm. they? Well, and you're not finding any bone. Mm. That's weird. There's no remains. But like they said, could be hot enough to burn it. Well, hmm, maybe. But I don't think the report would end here if that was the case. Well, so Halloween. I'm getting creeped out, man. I don't know about you. I'm getting creeped out of you. Um, Matt's I'm, just sad at this stage. I'm sure, yeah, I'm just sad. So this was in this was the Christmas of 1945, right? In October of 1945, a couple months earlier, a visiting life insurance salesman, after being rebuffed, warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Oh, which seems a little conspicuous. Mm. Strange way to describe that too. He attributed this all to. The dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Another visitor to the house, who was, uh, I think, seeking like work, took the occasion to go around to the back and warn George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. George was puzzled by this observation since he'd just had the house rewired and an electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said afterwards that it, everything was fine. It was very safe. Who, who said that? Who threatened him with that? Just another visitor to the house. Oh, and did he take it as a threat? Is that what you're thinking? No, he just he sort of... It was a strange thing to this say. This particular person... So the, the life insurance salesman was kind of threatening. This guy was just kind of like, oh, I'd be careful of that. It'll, blow, it'll start a fire. And George oh. was like, but it's just been checked and installed and it's fine. That's weird. But obviously he kind of thought nothing of it at the time, but in mm. retrospect was like, hang on a second. Um, in the weeks before Christmas that year, his older son had noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, its occupants watching the youngest sort of children as they returned home from school. Now, the fire chief told George uh, to leave the site undisturbed so that the state's fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. But after four days, he and his wife could not bear the site anymore, so George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. The local coroner convened an inquest the next day, 
which held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. There you go. Among the jurors at the inquest was the man who had threatened George Sodder that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. That man was a juror. He was a juror in that inquest. That doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. Death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30. Uh, the local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all the bodies had been found, but then later in the same story saying that only part of one body was recovered. And George and Jenny Sodder were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral, which was held on January 2nd of the next year, although their surviving older children did. Matt, you're getting really distressed, but just hang in there, buddy. Just hang in there. Conspiracy. Not long afterwards, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Sodders started to question all of the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stage when the power should have gone out. Right. And it started in his his study, was it? Yeah, it started in like his office. But the lights were on. If the power had, if that if there'd been faulty wiring they wouldn't have had power. But Jenny noticed the lights were on half an hour before the fire started. And then the f- and witnesses, including the family, say the lights were on in the house as the house burnt. As it burnt, like the Titanic going down. So. It... What about, uh, there was also that thud on the roof too. Mm, we'll get to I that. We haven't talked about that yet. We mm. will get to that. Brick and stick. They later found. Great game. Great game. <laughs> they later found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house. Um, they just found it at the bottom of an embankment about 75 feet away. It's just just been tossed aside. How would it have gotten there? How would you toss a ladder? A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through in the fire, as they had initially thought, but it had been cut. Somebody had cut their phone line. How'd they find that out, sorry? A phone, a telephone repairman. Right. So he's like, no, you, it hasn't been burned through, it's been cut. In order, in order to cut the phone line, though, someone would have had to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach two feet out. Two feet away from the pole to cut it. Sounds like something you do with the ladder. Mm. Yes. A man whom neighbours had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was Another. identified and arrested. Another great game. Block and tackle. Block and tackle. So he was arrested. He was arrested. For? For, well, um, he, well, firstly for stealing the block and tackle, but also like they'd seen him around on that night, so they arrested him to question him. Right. He admitted to the theft and claimed that he'd been the one to cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying him exists, and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines to the Sodder house while stealing the block and tackle has never been explained. What? So what is a block and tackle? It's like a, a pulley system that they would use to um, like take engines out of cars. Like It's just a, oh, okay, it's like like a hook, and then it's, it would be set up on like a pulley. Right, so he's thieving, but he's apparently claimed that he'd, he was trying to cut the power. Yeah, he said, oh, yeah, I accidentally cut the pa- um, phone line. I thought that was the power line. And nobody thought to ask, why were you cutting the power? Yeah, they went, checks out. Fair enough then. Innocent mistake. So it sounds like, so, and he hasn't been identified, so he's no. possibly not real. No, I think he's real, but I think it was just like, all I, right, see ya. I think the government made this guy up. Okay. Sure, we're early on the conspiracies. Okay. Fox Mulder over here is Which I like. on the case. Now, Jenny sort of said in 1968 that if he'd cut the power line like he apparently intended, she and her husband, along with the other children, would never have been able to make it out of the house. So as in, if, he'd, uh, if he had cut the power line like he was intending to, rather than just accidentally cutting the phone line, then they all would have died. Why is that? I'm not sure why. That's just something that she said in this, like later in the 60s. They had all electric doors. <laughs> yeah, I don't really understand exactly what she means, but yeah, if he the light, maybe the way they got out, it was they needed the lights to. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, but so so perhaps plotting against them is, I think, kind of what she's getting at. Anyway. Jenny Sauter also had trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burned completely in the fire. Many of the household appliances had been found, still recognisable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. So, like, other things have definitely, you know, survived. So she's like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, 
She contrasted the results of the fire with the newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read about at the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. Yeah, I think it's strange to, to burn every single part of the body. Exactly. Of five bodies. Uh, she burned a small pile of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed, and none ever were. So she's like taking it upon herself to do these like scientific experiments. Wow. She contacted an employee from the local crematorium who told her that uh, human bones remain even after the bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours, which is far longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. The house fire went for about 45 minutes, and it's a wood fire. So it would have to be like 5,000 degrees or something. Yeah. Which some people argue there was coal stored in the basement because that was part of his business, was like transporting coal. So they're like, well, the fire would have been hotter than a standard wood fire. But I sort of call bullshit because I don't think it could have been the same. It couldn't have got to 2,000 degrees. That's 1,000 degrees Celsius. That's hot. That's really hot. That's really fucking hot. That's... It got to 30 degrees this week and I was like, whoo! Yeah. <laughs> it's was, hot! That was hot. I was real sweaty. My work brought ice creams around to us all. Wow. Yeah. Imagine what you'd get if it got to 1,000 degrees at your work. It burnt. We're coming back into the time of year where this podcast yeah. <laughs> gets so hot. And we and whinge constantly. We so. I'm loving wearing a jacket right now because I won't be for any weeks coming up. So anyway, do you see that there's maybe hope, Matt, and you can not be so terrified? Yeah. Why are you trying to build up my hope? Well, I'm, I'm trying just... To, what, it's, because what is, you're, you're, it's because you're really you're sucking the fun out of this podcast. This comedy podcast. There's been no fun with you sitting over there sooking. Yeah, start fanning okay. the flames. It was in the 40s. If they are dead... They'd be dead they, anyway. They died ages ago. That's Yeah, that makes me feel better. People die. Everyone dies. Everyone yes. dies. Everyone You're going to die. Gonna die. I'm going to die. Dave's yeah. definitely going to die. Oh, yeah, baby. I'm dying now. We're all dying. Oh, Anyway, so the truck's failure to start was also something that they, uh, they questioned a lot. George believed that they'd been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. Do you reckon, do they start starting the next few days? Or I don't know, yeah. It's like, if the truck's dead forever, then you'd be like, that's sus. Mm. But it's hard to disable a truck for like two hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit And then weird. it starts again. Somebody else, who's actually like one of the son-in-laws in the family, kind of, he thought like maybe just in the in the panic, they were like flooding the engine or just like they weren't, right. they weren't able to start it properly or something like that, but... Mm. That's all sort of, you know, speculation. This entire thing is speculation. Some accounts have suggested that the wrong number phone call to the Sutter house might have also uh, um, somehow been connected to the fire and disappearance of the children. Remember how, like, she got a yeah. phone call from someone? You said it was super creepy. Yeah, like, it's creepy. Like, there's laughing. just laughter and, um, like, it sounded like a party happening in the background. However, investigators later located the woman who had made the call, and she confirmed it had been a wrong number on her part. But, like... Who were you calling at midnight to go, ha <laughs> I'm drunk! Woo! Woo-hoo! That's what I do. Christmas Eve every year, baby. Oh, <laughs> call Eve. all of my family and friends. You call them? Call them all. At 12.30. 12.30, all at once, conference call, everyone I know. <laughs> and I just go, woo! I love that call. Yeah. I love getting that call. Yeah. You, you got the call. I'm yet to receive it. Did I not add you in on the conference call? I have not call? been on the com- conference call. Oh, I'm so sorry. Dial me in. I'll conference call you this year. Please. Hey, we should conference call sometimes. Yeah. In the boardroom. Just have a chat. Yeah, I think so. Just check in. Yeah, I think we really should do that. Just see how we're all coping with this tragic and sad story. No, And Matt. the aftermath of it. And Don't... how we're dealing with it. You know, It's now. not tragic. It's scary. It's Halloween, Matt. Get on board. It's not. Have a chocolate. It's spooky. <sighs> what happened? I know, I'm loving it. This is great. This, this is feeling like a Dave Warnicky mystery report to me. Thank you. I'm gripped as well. I'm also gripped yes. over here. I want to know what happens so I was bad. like, oh, I'm going to fuck up a mystery episode. Oh, this is so good. Okay, great. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
I gotta get something off my chest. Okay. I ate your last biscuit. I was that saving has been, them for my wedding. That has been stress <laughs> that has been stressing me out. I'm so sorry. I feel a lot better to get that off my chest. You know, keeping things bottled up can affect people negatively and that had been affecting me and that feel that's a weight off my shoulder. Yeah. It was delicious. I'm not sorry. But I did take the last biscuit. It, that he was saving for his wedding. I didn't know that. <laughs> That is upsetting to hear, but I think I'm going to have to get some uh, positive coping skills, learn to set some boundaries. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's very convenient. It's flexible. You can fit it around your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. You too can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com D-G-O today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash D-G-O. So, as spring approached, the sodders, as they said they would, planted flowers in the soil uh, that they had bulldozed over the house. But further developments in early 1946 reinforced the family's beliefs that the children might be alive somewhere. What? (gasps) Wait, okay. What? Matt, you said it yourself. No one ever saw them go upstairs. Yeah, no, I thought that, but it's like I thought they were killed or something. Where would they have got... Someone took them away in a sack and have just left them in a swimming pool somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, that's much healthier. Keeping them fresh. (laughs) First, there was evidence that supported their belief that the fire had not started in the electrical system and was instead set deliberately. A driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house. Didn't think to come forward any sooner. When he'd seen balls of fire being thrown at a house. Oh, I see that all the time around these parts. These here parts, they love their fireball. Fireball, 12.30 fireball. one thirty fireball, 2 o'clock, go to bed. <laughs> come on, we all know the rules. Yeah, come on. 2 o'clock, go to bed. Yeah, they know the rules. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia, the, the youngest in the, the family. The snow had melted Sylvia? <laughs> <laughs> Gross. The snow had melted, comma. Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball. Was it like a rubber ball object in the nearby uh, brush? She found a rubber ball, like in the in the garden. Okay, yeah. And um, George, recalling his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb, hand grenade, or some other sort of explosive device that was used in combat. Pineapple bomb. Yeah, I'd never heard that. I like it. That sounds amazing. It's like an explosive pineapple It's like a pineapple bomb in my mouth. Pina colada. I want one on my pizza. Pineapple bomb. Yeah. So, yeah, they're thinking now that somebody had obviously... It's a grenade. ...been starting the fire. Family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although there was no way to prove it. But that's what they reckon. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the children themselves. (gasps) One woman, who'd been watching the fire from the road, said she'd seen some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning. Oh, okay. So that's a bit weird. Yeah. Real creepy. Another woman, at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, said she'd served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop car park as well. So, like, had they been taken? Oh. Mm. The sort of... The Sodders hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley. Incredible name. So good. That sounds like a 1920s voice. Oh, C.C. Tinsley on the case. (laughs) See? No, it's not quite right, is it? What's the P.I. voice that they always do? Like, Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I thought that was pretty damn good. Oh, okay, sick. Thank you. I'm happy with that. He learned that the um, insurance salesman who had threatened them uh, with the fire a year before. Oh, was it, it was a year before, not a few months before. Oh, I thought it was a year. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The guy who threatened them, the insurance salesman, um, he, so C.C. Tinsley was the one who found out that that particular man had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident, and he told the Sodders. Before that, they didn't know that that guy had been, you know, on the jury. He also learned of rumours around Fayetteville that despite his reports to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, Morris, the fire chief, had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Okay, that's fucking weird. What? Who did that? The fire chief. That's very strange. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George Sodder. (laughs) 
Solder and Tinsley went to Morris and confronted him with the news. He agreed to show the two where he'd buried it, uh, and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who, after examining it, told them it was in reality beef liver, very fresh, and had never been exposed to fire. What? So wait, what a weird. So he's like, <laughs> right? It doesn't make any yeah, sense. Go on, Matt, recap so, it for us. So that means so that makes it sound like they thought we've got this great way of proving the kids are dead. Uh, we'll make up this rumor that. The fire chief buried a heart, and then we'll we'll pretend we'll make this pretend heart, and hopefully no one asks any questions. <laughs> but all they used was a beef liver, not even a heart, and didn't even burn it or anything. That's a real weird attempt at getting people off the scent, right? Yep, real weird. <laughs> so weird. So weird. Um, I love it. Yeah. Later, more rumours circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally. Yeah, no shit. He'd supposedly placed it there in the hope that the Sodders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. Why is the fire chief so exactly. intent on covering this up? Exactly. Why does he want them to just be like, oh, our kids are dead? And why would they believe him that he did that? What a weird thing it's to so do. Weird. If, if you've done that. Fire chief, then I don't know if I trust you about anything. I don't trust yeah. him about anything. He didn't turn up for six hours. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't drive, drive the the truck. Couldn't find the keys. <laughs> what am I like? And then when he got there, he found a heart that no one else had noticed. And yeah, said, just the heart as well. Like everything like no else, bones. The, the bones burnt. That makes no sense. The rib cage around the heart, obviously, that melted away. Yeah, oh, hearts. They burn at five thousand degrees, yeah. not one thousand. Five thousand. Five thousand mm-hmm. Celsius. Um, Science. So that's all a little bit strange. In the- also, hearts are livers from cows. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that, yeah. Um, in the years that followed, there was a, a few more reported sightings of the children. We've got the hiccups there. After seeing a girl in a magazine picture of a young um, ballet dancers in New York City who looked like one of their missing daughters, Betty, George drove all the way to the girl's school where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused. So he followed up a lot of these, um, like any kind of tip-off or, or alleged sighting, he would always follow them up. So he's yeah. driven all the way to New York because he's seen a picture of a girl in the newspaper who looks a bit like what Betty would look like mm. a couple of years later. Which, like, in, That's torture. It totally is. And it also makes so much sense. Like, of course you would. Yeah. Um, he also tried to interest the FBI in investigating what he considered was a kidnapping. Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters, and uh, and his letter said, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of a local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. If the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance, he added, he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments declined to do so. Dodgy as fuck. So dodgy. So do, uh, it's almost feeling like the f- police and the fire department are like... They're all in on it. Yeah, well, I know, but... Or they're going like these delusional right. parents, but I feel like they're in on it. They're in on it. It might be a combination. Yeah, probably. The fire guy sounds dodgy as... And so in, dodgy. in American movies and TV, the local cops and the feds never get along. Uh, you know, right? When the feds come in... And it's like, no, it's my jurisdiction, <laughs> yeah. it's mine! <laughs> I think that's where I learnt the word jurisdiction. It's a great word, too. It's a great word. Um, in August of 1949, so a few years after it had happened, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artefacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. They were sent to Marshall T. Newman a specialist at the Smithsonian Institute. They were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. And his reports say, Since the uh, transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which normally fuses at 23, are still unfused. But... Given this age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest was Maurice, who had been 14 at the time. What? 
So now there's there's a dead body, but they don't know who They've it is. They've got like fragments of vertebrae. It's not a body. They've just got yeah. But how bits the fuck do they get there? Yeah, but also like, if why would they? Where's the rest of the bones? If that is actually one of those kids, then surely there'd be more than just fragments, right? Yeah, exactly. So what are the? But sorry, you reckon those kids killed other kids and kept fragments of bones in their bedroom? Probably not. To okay. be honest, this is, yeah, this is a, that's. <laughs> It wasn't where I was going. It sounds like but... a theory that not even the internet could get behind. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about that one, Maddie. To be honest. So, well, they just iterate those. They could be bone fragments from another time, right? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, someone could have been buried under the house or something. Well, decades earlier. Newman added that the bone showed no sign of being exposed to flame. Further, he agreed that it was very strange that those bones were not were the only ones found, since a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all of the children. The report concluded that the vertebrae had instead most likely come from the dirt that Sodder had bulldozed over the site. Later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. So they may have been taken from somewhere else. Right. He supposedly confirmed they came from a cemetery, but how, yeah, not a lot of, I don't have a lot of information backing that up, but that's fucking weird. That's weird. Um, the investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia legislature <laughs> held two hearings on the case in 1950. Afterwards, however, Governor Oakley L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W. E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was hopeless and closed it at a state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years of following fruitless leads. So even the FBI and local police have been like, no idea. Um, they had flyers. The family, the, the Sodders, had flyers printed up with pictures of the children. offering See my a, festival show. Yeah. <laughs> two for one tickets. <laughs> um, offering a $5,000 reward, which was soon doubled, for any information that would have settled the case uh, for even one of the children. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the side of the house and another along US uh, Route 60. Um, with the same information. It would in time become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville. Apparently it was there for about 40 years. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, crazy. Until the 90s. Their efforts soon brought uh, brought another reported signing of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran... <laughs> <laughs> Ida Crutchfield. Crutchfield. Ida Crutchfield. <laughs> That's Mrs. Crutchfield to you. <laughs> Please, Mrs. Crutchfield is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> Crutchfield. That's a beautiful name. Isn't it great? Ida as well. Ida. Sounds like a Bart prank called a mo. Yeah, totally Ida does. Crutchfield. Um, she ran a Charleston hotel um, and claimed to have seen the children approximately a week after the fire. Approximately. Come on, mate. Sorry, mate. I'm doing so well here. You are doing very, very well. <laughs> Didn't even notice over you. Approximately. Better. The better. Thanks. Enunciate. Isn't that hard? My God, I hate you. Like me. I always say words perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, she'd seen them apparently a week after the fire. She said, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom appeared to be of uh, Italian extraction, she said. When she attempted to speak with the children... One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner, and he turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning, um, and investigators today don't really consider her story credible, as she only saw pictures of the children two years after the fire, and it was another five years before she came forward. Right. So they're like, mm, she's probably full of shit. Right. But who but knows? But they want you to think that. Exactly. George Sodder, like I said before, he followed up a lot of leads in person and he travelled all over the place following tips. A woman in St. Louis claimed that Martha was being held in a convent there and a bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. None of those proved to be significant, but they were all kind of looked into. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. So George was even like questioning his own family. Wow. What, what, they'd kidnapped his kids and called them their own. Yeah. That'd be a pretty brazen plan if yeah. you did that. Oh, no, that's not Sarah. 
This is Ashley. <laughs> but you didn't have kids a week ago. Yeah, I had Ashley. What? You're 17. I've always had Ashley. You know her. Show me baby photos. Uh, I lost them in fire. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> triggered. I'm triggered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis Sodder had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere, but Sodder and his son-in-law were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find the two men she'd indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Uh, the son-in-law said years later that doubts about the denial lingered in Sodder's mind for the rest of his life. So he's sort of like, oh, maybe they are but his were kids. they maybe my kids? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Did I just speak to my sons and they've denied? I don't know. Oh. Really weird. Another letter that they received that year brought the Sodders what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Louis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed just to her, postmarked uh, in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Instead, um, inside was a picture of a young man, around 30, with features strongly resembling Louis, who would have been in his 30s if he'd survived. On the back was written, Louis Sodder, I love brother Frankie, Lily Boys, A90132 or 35. None of that makes any sense other than Louis Sodder. Oh, so you don't know what that means? What, the rest of it? Yeah. No. Right. I yeah. thought it was some sort of family like in joke. Mm. Remember that thing we used to joke about? A nine oh one three two or thirty five, I don't know. Favorite number on the Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> Mama. I know you love cooking. Well you called it the Louis Decimal System because <laughs> I'm your little bookworm. It w- couldn't have been like a postcode or something and maybe an O R being not or but being Oregon or something. Possibly, or? yeah. I've just cracked this case wet open. You've got it. You've so- you found him. They hired another private private detective to go to Central City and look into the uh, look into this case, but he never reported back to the Sodders, and they were unable to locate him afterwards. The private detective went missing. What? Chit, chit. They never heard from him again. What? So now, do you, do you reckon he took the money and run, or he he disappeared? Maybe. Well, that's like one theory. Because I saw um like a YouTube video about this case where people were kind of pulling it apart, and somebody was like. When your private detective goes missing, like you are in with some bad people and you should stop investigating this case. So the PI goes missing. Um, but the no, pic- I think you should keep investigating because something dodgy's happened. Yeah, it's super weird. The picture nonetheless gave them a lot of hope and they added it to the billboard, um, leaving Central City out of it and any other published information out of fear that Louis might come to harm if it was him. Um, and they put an enlargement of the photo over their fireplace. Like they just believed that that was a picture of Louis. Oh. Yeah. George Sodder admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail later the next year that the lack of information had been like hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further. He nevertheless vowed to continue. Time is running out for us, he admitted in another interview around that time. But we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. So that's really rough. Um, George died in 1969, and after his death, Jenny stayed in the family home. Um, and for the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former house. What's she wear in the afternoon? <laughs> Sorry, that's awful. Um, M-O-U-R. Oh. Mm. Um, I don't think that's even the first time I've done a morning, bad morning misunderstanding. A good morning. <laughs> After Jenny died in 1989, the family took down the weathered, worn billboard. So she one. lived for 20 years after her husband. Yeah. Morning in black, tending to the garden. That's so awful. The surviving Sodder children, joined by their own children, continued to publicise the case and investigate leads. They, along with older uh, Fayetteville residents, have theorised that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George Sodder and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said that they would be safe if they left the house. They were possibly taken back to Italy and if the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from harm. So like the, so maybe yeah, the, the two boys that said, no, we're not your sons, maybe they were. I don't think so, but who knows? <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> spooky Halloween episode. It's the unknown. <laughs> Stacey Horn, who did a segment on the case for National Public Radio around its 60th anniversary in 2005, 
also believes the children's death in the fire is the most plausible solution. So she thinks they died. She thinks they, they probably died in the fire. That makes the most sense to her. But to me, the b- lack of bones is crazy. Yeah. yeah. But that's the thing. So she said um, uh, she noted that the fire had continued to smolder all night after the house collapsed and that two hours was not enough time to search the ash thoroughly. So they kind of did a really quick look at the the fire site after it, the fire had happened. Um, even if it had been, uh, the firefighters may not have known what to look for. However, she said, there's enough genuine weirdness about this whole thing that if someday it's learned that the children did not die in the fire, I won't be shocked. That's kind of how I feel too. So it kind of comes to the end of the report in a way because, like, that's that's all the information there is. But... Ugh, unsatisfying mystery. Oh, mystery. <laughs> mystery. But what do you reckon? I don't know. Well, as I just said, I think if they did die, surely... That'd You'd be, find something. The evidence of five bodies. One body not turning up, maybe, but five. Five. Five bodies. And they were five able to find fragments of spinal. They found what? a dictionary and some coins. Yeah, like dictionary. you'd find. Everyone knows that dictionaries burn around the same heat as, as bones. No, they don't burn. Oh, dictionaries don't burn. Yeah. No, the, the language is too powerful. Right, too powerful. that's right, of course. Okay, well, that, that stops me dead in my tracks. I I don't I don't know I've got no answer then. I just yeah. I feel like yeah they went back to Italy. Do you think Sicilian mafia mafia really did burn the house down and either they kidnapped them or someone else kidnapped them? But it's like if they were trying to extort money, surely they'd have to approach him and ask for money. Yeah, and at no stage were were they? Yeah, I don't know. And did they intend for all of the family to die? But then there's still no remains of the kids. I believe the kids are alive, I think. Or lived, at least. They may not be alive now. But even if they if they were, then they would have grown to adults and you'd think that they would have found their family or... Because they were old enough to... It's not like they were taken as toddlers and then could be raised yeah, as if, if like, 14, these are your parents. you yeah, remember everything. you remember everything. You'd know exactly what had happened to you. So you'd find your family or you'd, like... Sure, you'd give your mum some closure. Like yeah, like even like that letter, but like more specific. But hey, then it says me. like I love brother Frankie, but they didn't have a Frankie in their family, so it, I don't know what that means. And super weird. And yeah, like the police didn't and Frank the fire. Suggest this topic. Yes, brother Frankie, <gasps> we found him. It's his way of, of. Matt just keeps cracking this case wide open. Fuck, you're good. You should be a detective. You should be. I am sorry, guys. I should have told you this a while ago. It's um, I'm a private eye though. And I keep things private. He does. He's a private guy. <laughs> private eye and I'm a private guy. Very good. Very good. Well done, all. <laughs> and a good night to all. Well done, everybody. So, yeah, that's the story oh, of the Soda Children's I'd love to Disappearance. Hear, I'd okay, love to hear fine. more no, about this. No, I didn't this. want to finish my sentence. Oh, good. Well, that worked out really well then. <laughs> <laughs> so, and did you get, researching this, did you get the feeling that this is like a famous American case? Because I've never heard of it. I don't know. There's not a lot of information. Okay, so it's not well, like a super famous There is and there isn't. Like, that's about all that I could find. And to be honest, the Wikipedia page of it was the most thorough I could find of all the information. Interesting. Yeah, because normally it's like a bit shit. I mean, you go to several other resources, but like... Oh. There was other things just kind of said all the same thing. I couldn't find any other information about it. It's weird. It's a weird one, but I like it. Uh, my theory, or not mine, somebody else suggested to me after I sent them the Wikipedia article, suggested that the reason they couldn't find any bones is because the kids didn't have any bones. <gasps> oh, jelly people. I didn't consider that. I didn't even think of jelly people. Yeah, jelly, jelly people. people. Five times jelly people. Yep. They were... F- Five times jelly people? Yeah. And there were five of them? Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's 25 jelly people. It is genetic. Right. It would be in the family. Yeah, it would be in the family. They'd all be jelly people. Makes sense. George, Joe, John, George Jr., Jenny. Joey, Jojo. Joey, Jojo. Jelly. (gasps) It makes sense. It makes sense. Jelly people do name themselves with just sounds. It's true. It's true. So yeah, it's uh, it's up in the air. Well, just thank you very much for this uh, Halloween mystery edition, and thank you, Frank, for the topic. It was really interesting. Very it cool. Really, really was. Wow, I'd never heard of any mm. of it. 
But, you know, we thank Frank, but we also, at the end of every episode, we'll always thank our Patreon listeners as well. That's right. We thank the general listeners at large for listening to the show. And thanks to everyone that's been uh, reviewing the show on iTunes. That really does actually help, believe it or not. Your minutes spent on uh, reviewing us, giving some stars and writing things is actually really helpful and very nice to read as well. And to all the new listeners uh, that found out from a friend, if you guys want to pass the show on to anyone, that is a great way to get the pod out there. Yeah, it's fine by us. And another great way to support the pod is via Patreon, which I think is just what, what was just... What is, was... Blah, blah, blah. Well, 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 which is what Jess was getting at, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash do go on pod for all your Patreon do go on needs. If you want to chip into the show a little bit each month, does keep the pod going. And, of course, you get stuff in exchange, including a bonus episode a month. Ooh, Ooh that's fun. And also, we'd like to thank you uh, on the show. So, Jess, would you, you got some, some names there from, from the Patreon peeps. I do. And I would love to thank from Hobart, Tasmania, oh, wow. Australia... I've never been, but I'd love to. Have you not? Really? I love it. Oh, it's great. I love, I love been to it. every state, go. been to every territory except Oh, mate, Tassie. you got to get down there. You and then while, while you're down there, you can go visit our good friend and Patreon supporter, Molly Bird. Molly Bird. Isn't that great a great name. name? Great name. Molly's already good. I'm a big Molly fan. I love Molly. And Bird is fucking sick too. Good yeah. on you, Molly Bird. Great name. You may not have chosen it, but it's we, still great. If... if, if um. These guys were lost as children. Where would they have ended up? What would their new identity Tasmania. be? Yeah, Molly, new identity would be Molly was taken to Tasmania. Wow. Yeah, that is fascinating, isn't it? Wow, Molly. Yeah, and I would also like to thank. <laughs> what do we give them a, a yeah. Halloween name? Yeah. I think that's probably probably a better one to do. Okay, well, Molly Bird could be. Moldy bird. Moldy bird, yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's the that's best funny. I'll come up with. Moldy bird. Good on you, Jess. And I'd also like to thank Chris Brennick from Walkaway, Western Australia. Ooh. Or as I like to call it, I'm walking away from troubles in my life. I'm walking Craig away. Craig David, he keeps haunting me this week through Halloween. I know, I'm just, I'm just a lot of, Craig Davis come up a lot in my life this week. Right, Chris, if I was going to give Curtis Halloween Brennick. a scary, um, like a Halloween name, I'd call it Halloween. You know, on Twitter, how you change. That's good. Oh, yeah. Well, what would Curtis Brennick, what would his Halloween name be? Oh, man, I'm just go, I just go straight to porn names every time. <laughs> Curtis Brennick. Which to some people is pretty scary. Hurt us. Yeah, Brennick. that's good. Uh, machete. <laughs> Curtis Machete. All right. Thank you, Curtis. Dave. Thank you, Curtis. I'd like to thank uh, from Royal Oak, Michigan. Ooh. John Cole. John Cole. Yes. C-O-A-L is how I'm changing it to Halloween because Cole is scary. Ooh, it's a depleting resource. (laughs) Ooh, how would the world function without it? Ooh. John Cole. Thank you so much from Royal Oak. (laughs) And I would like to thank from... um, Leichhardt, New South Wales, Michelle Lucas, or Michelle Lucifer. Oh, damn it. Spookus is better. Sorry, Dave. (laughs) Jess pwned you right then. Spookus. Come on. Lucifer. That's that's dumb. Michelle Lucifer is in the devil. I get it, but Spookus is better. Spookus is a lot better. And your your one was really, you need to read it. it. What about my hell, Spookus? (laughs) That's good. Yeah, my health spook. That's right. good. All thank right, Maddie, what do you got? I came back there, Michelle. Big love. I'd love to uh, thank from West Sussex, Sarah Groom. Sarah Gloom. Oh, yes. Yes, <laughs> very good. This is Jess's best pun week ever. I know, and I'm never good at these. Scarer. Scarer Gloom. Scarer Gloom. <laughs> Woo. Uh, thank you, Sarah. And I'd also like to thank another bird. This one's spelled with a U from Arlington, Virginia. Andrew Bird. Ooh. Uh, mm, oh no. Andrew Murd. <gasps> Andrew Murder. Yes, that's good. And yeah, no, nah, can't do anything with Andrew. Hand Drew Murd. <laughs> if you can think of a scary name for Andrew, tweet us in. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew. His gun. <laughs> and a murder. And a murder. <laughs> and a murder. So mine, I like. So I'm thinking of uh, the bride and bird. 
The bird and groom. <laughs> Duh. No good. Bird, bird and groom. Gloom. Gloom. Bird and gloom is oh, a good name for a pub. Murd and gloom. Okay, stop. Thanks to those people Thanks anyway. to all our spooky friends for supporting the show. Hi, <laughs> Patreon. We do absolutely uh, appreciate it. And uh, if you want to get in contact, do go on pod at gmail.com is the way you can do so via email. Also, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We don't mention YouTube that often. We've got a YouTube page, youtube.com slash do go on pod. We put the occasional video plus every episode goes on there. So if your friend's not into podcasts, they don't know how any of the apps work, send them a YouTube link. Everyone gets that. And then maybe they can get hooked that way. Ooh. Pretty good? They get hooked. <gasps> like Ooh. the guy from I Know What You Did Last Summer. Yeah. <gasps> Hook hand. Or whatever his name really was. Yeah. Scary. A real not scary bad guy. Ooh. Scary. Ooh, a fisherman Ooh. with a hook. <gasps> anyway. 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 And should we uh, maybe tease that next week we might be in with another... We've had a Halloween episode this week. Maybe we'll have another special episode next week. Ooh. Maybe. Maybe we won't uh, tease it too much. But, um, Ooh. Maybe. Oh, oh. It's going to be a lot of fun. On uh, the pod for that, we'll be tweeting about it this week. But uh, thanks again for listening, and see you next time. Bye bye. Bye. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want, it's up to you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.